on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Susie Dennison. I'm a Senior Policy Fellow and the Director of the European Power Programme at TCFR, standing in for Mark Leonard, who is on leave this week. And this week, we're going to be talking about international cooperation on global health. So as many European countries are starting to see light at the end of the tunnel after another hard winter struggling with COVID, Attention's been focusing slightly on the question of global inequity around tackling the pandemic. Last week, the former UK Prime Minister and WHO Ambassador Gordon Brown called vaccine and testing inequality the most monumental international public policy failure of recent times, warning that history will not be kind to Western leaders if they don't rise to this global challenge. And I'm really thrilled to have two wonderful speakers to discuss today whether or not they will rise to this challenge. Firstly, we have Gunilla Carlson, Vice Chair of the Global Fund Strategy Committee, former Deputy Director of UNAIDS, former Swedish Minister for International Development Cooperation and a valued ECFR Council member. And secondly, Anthony Dworkin, Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR and our very own in-house expert on global health. So thank you both very much for joining me today. Anthony, I'd like, if I can, to start with you. You've been looking for a number of years now at the question of how the EU and its member states can best pursue the goal of more effective multilateral cooperation on global health against the background of a geopolitically competitive world. And you've actually published a paper this week on the subject and indeed wrote the health chapter of the ECFR Power Atlas at the end of last year, mapping out uh, this picture. But can you start by outlining those of us who haven't studied this question as closely as you? why geopolitics has become so central to the discussion about health, which should be a basic public good that we're working together globally to deliver. Thanks, Susie, and it's a pleasure to be on the podcast again. So as you say, health has this paradoxical quality, and this is something that I think the pandemic has really brought home to us. So on the one hand, what COVID-19 has reminded everyone is that Health is at the heart of your conception of national security. I mean, after all, the primary responsibility of states is to protect the the lives and well-being of their people. And so, therefore, inextricably, it is bound up with questions of security and the kind of international politics around that. And yet, at the same time, it's an area quintessentially where cooperation is in everyone's interests. And we've seen how a a virus arising in one corner of the world can have this monumental impact on the the lives of people everywhere. So cooperation is really essential in fighting it. But at a time of international rivalry, uh, cooperation has proved difficult that we've seen that only amplified by the kind of extraordinary development of countermeasures, particularly vaccines, because the countries that have been able to develop vaccines have gained an extraordinary advantage. And we've seen how that has also played into the international inequalities that exist and that Gordon Brown was talking about. So in this sense, while there is a case for the world pulling together, there's also a way that vaccines and health more broadly amplify international tensions. And I'm afraid we've seen more of that than the cooperation. And this at a time when, particularly in the early period of the response, international cooperation and international leadership was lacking. So there is there have been some steps that have been taken that are promising. And the EU has done a bit, including working on COVAX, the vaccine sharing initiative. Um, but there's a long way to go 
both still in respect of COVID-19 and in trying to learn the lessons for the future. And uh, you mentioned at the end there the, the role that Europe's been playing. If you had to sort of rank Europe's performance, um, how, how do you think it's doing? What, what's on the kind of the positive side of the ledger and the negative in terms of navigating this picture? Well, I think at a time when the US was really absent and China was pursuing a, a rather separate agenda, the EU did kind of step up into the gap a bit at the beginning, and particularly, as I mentioned, in developing this COVAX vaccine sharing scheme and also through some measures at the World Health Organization. But there have been a number of obstacles. First of all, we should emphasize that cooperating on health in terms of foreign policy is kind of a new thing for the EU. I mean, traditionally, health has been very much a competence of the member states and the degree to which Europe has worked internationally in this area has been largely sort of through the frame of development, but not so much through the frame of geopolitics and the kinds of issues that that's that surround that. And in fact, it's quite telling that last week uh, under the French presidency, there was the what they said was the first ever meeting, joint meeting of health ministers and foreign ministers. So I think there is a new effort now on the European level to think how the EU can be a a more cohesive, a more united player in this area. So that's one thing where it's kind of a new terrain, but Europe is getting into it. And then the second question, I think, is there has been a European tendency not to be so aware of the geopolitical currents in this area. And also, for instance, to treat European vaccine manufacturing as in a kind of market-based way. So the EU has said and made quite a lot of the fact that European pharmaceutical companies have been exporting throughout the pandemic. That's terrific, but they have been mostly exporting to wealthy countries. And Europe is in the face of kind of calls for a loosening of intellectual property that would allow more manufacturing in some of middle-income countries in the global south, the EU has so far been resisting that. So I think there's some work yet to be done on the European side in terms of thinking how their vaccine manufacturing strengths that they have can really be put at the service of the rest of the world more effectively. Thanks a lot, Anthony. Kunina, although you're a European yourself, you've obviously worked on these questions um, uh, primarily in the international arena over recent years. Does uh, the picture that Anthony has painted of the role that, that Europe's playing on global health chime with what you see from, from that perspective? Yes, absolutely. And congratulations, Anthony and ECFR, to the excellent paper, because I think it puts it into context and that we perhaps should be a little bit humble, but also seize the opportunities now with global health as something that brings actually people together, that is super important for nations and also local leaders, as well as for the planet. There are so much of interconnectedness. And I think for the Africans and the Europeans, we also have to realize the potential of institutional building and collaboration, as well as what Antonio also said, it's also about the pharma industry. It's about growth, it's about opportunity. So, it's not only about having a defense here, but rather to see this is an arena for true collaboration where we are so similar and where we can learn from each other. You know, it's absolutely sure the impact of this. I mean, more than one year after the launch of the global vaccine campaign, and we have seen it didn't deliver 
what it's promised, but still it delivered and Europeans did quite a lot to that. And one week before the summit, the pandemic is still a reality and putting a lot of pressure on the Africans, but partly also on the Europeans. So we have gone through this together, but the indirect impact in Africa has been far more severe. I see that on HIV, TB, maternal health, the, the weak institutions and not a functioning health systems has also been so fragile during the COVID pandemic. But if we now learn from this and to see, it's not only about the Ebola outbreak or the persistent HIV problem, it's also about how can we strengthen the capacity in Africa because it's in the interest also for the Europeans and we can learn. So it's not only to look at the failures, we can identify the gaps, we can understand we can do far more better together in partnerships and we should as Europeans also see that a lot of good innovations is taking place that can help our own health systems. And me, myself, also see the challenge with mental health issues in, in Europe and everywhere in the world. What can we learn from a community-based health systems in Africa? You know, we have to not only talk about the money. We should also talk about how do you have a true comprehensive partnership in this area? And it would be really, as you can hear, I'm really excited about this, but it, it won't be easy, of course, due to what also Anthony mentioned. So over to you, Zuzi, again. <laughs> well, you've mentioned the fact that we've got uh, the summits uh, between Europe and Africa coming up at the end of this week. And, and you've talked about the sort of the potential if both sides can take steps to, to move the cooperation forward. What is your sense of whether we are going to see progress in, in the summit this weekend? Do you think that we, we have the right framework in place to, to move that forward? Basically, yes. We have experienced this crisis together. We have felt that it has had a heavy impact on our populations and that Africa has also suffered far worse from an economic perspective. And the institutions, of course, money helps, right? There are work going on in the European Commission, a lot of interesting work also within the G20 and, and G7, but it's not only about the money, it's also to be creative and curious here and to make sure that we also recognize the political capacity in Africa. You know, sometimes, and, and I was a development minister before, we have been a patronizing and we have this history also of promising a lot and not delivering because we have failed. The global response has not been as strong as it could be. But if we only use this as development assistance and not talk about that it's in our own interest, because the Africans now will building institutions like, for example, the, the comprehensive free trade area. It's part of a health response, you know, because to building, it's important with free trade also on health. It's very important to see the capacity in Africa CDC and Africa Medicines Agency. And we should use these institutions. The best way to strengthen them is to use them and to see how this will also help scientists that are used to work globally. And I, and I hope that that kind of think broader and see this as a comprehensive package where we both can benefit and not only as an intervention in order to respond to, to a pandemic and like putting some kind of aid, but we have to decide now that next time around, we must be more, you know, proactive and not reactionary. And we have to build this together while respecting 
it is national interests. So Anthony, um, Gunilla has made reference to some of the things that Europeans need to, to learn from the way that African uh, countries have been handling the, the pandemic. Um, in your chapter of the, the Power Atlas, you had some really interesting data about public opinion um, in different parts of the world about the way their confidence in, in the government's expertise on handling the pandemic and how that fed through into views on vaccines. And what one can see there is that Africans seem a lot more uh, confident, a lot sort of less sceptical than Europeans about the role that their governments are playing. I'm talking to you today from France, where we're seeing the Convoi de la Liberté protesting against uh, precisely government involvement in these kinds of issues, restricting freedoms to a point which those protesters are not comfortable with. To what extent do you think that this is all playing a part in the measures that governments are, are able to take and feeding through into international cooperation? Well, even since the Power Atlas came out, and those figures were already quite interesting there, there's been a major new piece of research that was recently published in The Lancet, which was tracking the success of different countries in dealing with the pandemic across the world and seeing what other indicators it correlated with. And there was really a striking correlation with keeping the, the levels of mortality down and the levels of infection down and trust. So the, the trust that people have in governments and in authorities and also in each other has really, I think, played a decisive difference in the quite remarkable range of different impacts that we've seen around the world with COVID. So that is interesting in itself. And I think it's when we're thinking about what's the best way to help countries strengthen their resilience against pandemics, Obviously, a lot of it is about health system strengthening and building up vaccine manufacturing capacity and institutions in the way that Gunilla was talking about. But as you say, there are lessons also for us to learn. Many European countries before thought that they had extremely strong preparedness for pandemics and the various indices that have been drawn up that showed European countries coming out quite well. And yet when the virus arrived, they often didn't fare so well. And so I think these questions of trust, of fighting disinformation, is also a very important part of the picture. And on a global level, I think this is, again, something where there could be cooperation in terms of improving measures to boost the people's confidence in international authorities and putting additional resources into the World Health Organization, perhaps strengthening its independence in various ways, because there was a perception probably outrunning the reality that it was being politicized. But still, I think at a time of increasing political competition, where countries are often touting the virtues of their own vaccines and perhaps running down the effectiveness of other rival vaccines. It's really important to try and have a kind of recognized global authority of the sort that the World Health Organization is. So that is also part of the European agenda at this point going forward. Gunilla, you look like you want to react on this. Yeah, yeah, because I also like very much the, the report from Anthony and putting WHO in context here and to see how we need global cooperation and capacity. Uh, and that's why I really recommend everyone to read it, but also to understand now how we perhaps need to have better global preparedness and response in the future. And that means to have the trust also globally, trust in data, and trust in a chain, you know, it must be decentralized and we must trust the whole chain. And that's why we also need to build the capacity everywhere. 
the trust from Africans in their institutions, it's also like a promise that is going to be better. The Abuya Declaration, it's long, long time ago where Africans promised to put more percentage of the GNI into health systems, but it's slowly, slowly increasing. But it's about now for Africans to have an identity around health sovereignty. And that's not only to, you know, have a health service and a clinic. It's actually about being part of research, of innovations, of manufacturing, production, and not only about vaccines. And to have that independence so that you have something on your own continent and perhaps development cooperation and other things have hampered that. But now there is like a new energy from the African side and in general, right? And I think that can be embraced, but it can't happen without functioning institutions that are there to support and to make sure that we have equal understanding, not only about data and, and, and capacities, but also how we move forward now together to be able to tackle coming mm -hmm. challenges because we know it's going to happen again. Are you, are you optimistic that we are actively learning from this experience and that we are sort of to some extent future-proofing the institution and to, to put ourselves globally in a position to handle future pandemics or indeed prevent them more effectively? Or is, is your sense that what we're actually doing is coping with the realities at the moment? And maybe linked to that question, I wondered if either of you wanted to kind of extend the discussion you were having about trust beyond the Europe-Africa relationship and, and to sort of to say to what extent you feel that the, the ideas of different global regions developing their sovereignty on health is compatible in a competitive global environment with delivering the global good. Yeah, and, and, and that's why the need for WHO and WTO uh, to make sure that we are not seeing new protectionism here. Uh, and that will be the trick. Is it enough global trust in this area? And now we are talking about Africa-Europe summit within one week here. And I think for those two continents, it's an opportunity for, a, can I say, a fresh start? linked to other challenges we do see on migration and climate change. And if we could have like a comprehensive understanding and to see that this is an equal need and an equal opportunity and to learn from each other. I think that would be so inspirational because it's so many tough things going on in the world right now. But what can we do for our people? And will that also help the planet? And we could take the lead as EU Africa. And I hope it can be about that and not only about, yes, yes, we're going to find one more billion to strengthen the capacity. It's, it must be a more vivid <laughs> response that can really say that we have this in common and we can learn from each other. And hopefully that will come. But of course, we are starting low because Europeans have, have a history of being patronizing and just using official development assistance in this. And now we're talking about broad partnership. We're talking about regulations. We are talking about tearing down obstacles for transfer of technology and also recognizing, of course, the weak capacity in many African states. The low level of spending, the low financial capacity, a lot of regulatory issues that needs to be dealt with. It's really, it, it's not an easy journey, but it's a very, it's a hopeful one if it happens. Yes, and that's why I'm so happy that health will be rather prominent during this time, not as a necessity, but also hopefully as an opportunity. Anthony, uh, what's your take? Yes, I mean, I, you know, it's nice to hear Gunilla's optimism. And I think you can <laughs> envisage a system working well where the 
regions, Africa and other regions are developing more self-sufficiency, more resilience, better regional coordination, more capacity to make their own vaccines, make their own pharmaceutical products, uh, better surveillance and monitoring, all linked to a kind of central oversight from the World Health Organization. But at the same time, I think that we have to be realistic about some of the obstacles that remain. And one of the obstacles is that international politics is not going to go away. And if we see the various proposals and plans that have been put forward for strengthening the World Health Organization, some of them seem a lot more likely to happen than others. So in a rather characteristic way, the EU is pushing this idea of a new treaty because Europeans love new institutions and new laws. And the Americans are focusing a bit more on revising the, the rules that exist. But in either case, I think we're going to run up against the fact that some countries are not going to want anything that represents a further intrusion into their sovereignty. And we've already seen how China has been extremely defensive about any kind of investigation into the origins of COVID-19. So I think while it's important to try and do as much as possible at this collective global level, I think waiting for everyone to move forward together in the old tradition of the World Health Organization is perhaps going to be a bit slow and there would be a danger of losing the momentum that exists now. So I think there has to be a kind of compromise between the traditional European approach of building, strengthening the central institutions and perhaps having a new treaty, and the Americans who want to move a bit more forcefully in a kind of like-minded way, setting up a, a new fund linked to the World Bank and so on. And I think both of those tracks have to move forward together. And finally, this, again, to go back to the point that Gunilla was making, I think rather than trying to force a way to get countries to give up information about health emergencies that they might not want to give up. It's better to offer incentives and capacity building to countries that do want to share that information, but also want to feel that they're part of a reciprocal global system that then offers them something in return or doesn't leave them disadvantaged. That, I think, is a, a more promising and positive agenda, and perhaps at a time when there are so many different demands on the world, it's worth concentrating on that as a priority. And I think, as you said, what can we do? And worldwide treaties, but that's why I'm enthusiastic about African CDC working with Europeans. That's why I think also if we look together, for example, on the capacity on workforce, on nurses, that is a gap in all our countries at current, right? Uh, how can we work on that together? It shouldn't only be political, it can also be practical. And that's what I meant with using the African Medicines Agency, using and collaborating with African CDC from a European point of view. And that's already happening, but that can really spur where we can go together and become perhaps a, like a coalition of the willings, perhaps not all the EU states or not all the Africans, but at least having a way forward where you can see and how much you can learn from each other. Uh, geopolitics aside, the good thing is we have now your excellent report that put this into a context, but it shouldn't be a, that that will let us say that, oh, we have to wait for China. No, on the contrary. Mm -hmm. I well, I choose, to, I choose to go with your here. optimism, uh, Gunilla, you. uh, <laughs> to, uh, and, and, and I, shall, I shall live in hope that uh, cooperation around the issue of health is, is the issue that unblocks 
things after what has been a, a difficult few years in, in Europe-Africa relations. And, and not to, sorry, sorry for interrupting you, but I think it's also obvious for people, right? Diseases are spreading. So what do you do? Yeah. And, and it matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anthony in his paper talks about a, a new deal um, on health. And I think it's, it's exactly as you say, the, the, it's the, the mix of political and uh, the, the, the policy that, that is perhaps means that this is the, the issue that, that will bring international cooperation to a, a newly effective place. So um, I'm afraid we have to leave it there on the substance today, but I think that there is plenty for us to come back to in future conversations, both around how uh, the framework is working in terms of the international institutions and also sort of how health is progressing in Europe and Africa relations. But thank you both for a fascinating um, discussion today. We've just got one thing left before you're allowed to leave, which is our bookshelf segment. Who wants to go first? What's, what, what, are, what are you reading? What are on your bedside tables at the moment? Anthony. The book that I have been reading is, uh, it's a novel, and I can't really say it's escapism because it's dealing with quite a difficult subject. It's this modern classic American novel, which I should have read a long time ago, uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. And it's about the, the legacy of slavery told through the story of uh, an escaped slave and her relationships with her children and it's a combination both of very forceful narrative, but also these kind of folkloric elements and the degree of magical realism. And it uh, adds up to an extremely powerful read and a reminder that however difficult things can seem at the moment, there are at least some terrible problems that we don't have to deal with at the moment. That's a great book, a great recommendation. Gunilla. Yeah, thank you for, for raising that. I feel very technocratic. At current, I work with the Global Fund and its strategy, the Global Fund to fight HTB and malaria. And actually, on my bookshelf is Oxford Guide to Plain English. Because I realize now two years of virtual meetings, we have lost perhaps the capability to have a plain conversation and the risk of misunderstandings and the need for more, more of clarity in, in writing has made me read this book. <laughs> and I sure need it because I think now we don't have body language. We have to understand each other. We have to collaborate more globally. And I'm a non-native English speaker and we all have to, you know, see how we can understand each other better, uh, virtual or not. That's, I that's think what perhaps I really... even we native English speakers should be made to read that. I think that sounds like a very good recommendation. <laughs> so I'm obviously going to recommend the uh, publications we've been talking about today, both the Power Atlas, uh, the health chapter that Anthony's written there, and his new paper launched this week. Both can be found on the ECFR site. But I'm also going to recommend a book which I was, by chance, I, I started last week before knowing that I was going to be chairing this podcast, and I wish I had finished in time to say something more on it. But it's called The Uncounted uh, Politics of Data and Global Health by Sarah Davis. And I think it's a, it's a really fascinating read because it, it sort of brings together many of the elements we've been talking about today on the sort of policy side, but also the role that public data plays within shaping that for the positive and the negative. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to draw this discussion to a close. We'll put a link to everything that we've been talking about on www.ecfr.eu. 
If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or on ours. Above all, please do give us a good rating and a review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. But for now, from Gunilla Carlson, Anthony Dworkin and myself, Susie Dennison, it's goodbye. The editor of this week's podcast is Katerina Egel.